0: This is where normal comes to die. Mediocrity meets its final demise, and the status quo is unabashedly dismantled. Welcome to Reinvention Radio. Now, here's your host, Steve Olscher.
1: Welcome to Reinvention Radio. No, I am not Steve Olsher. I'm Mary Goulet. Steve is out for the day, but Richard Ote is here. Hello, Richard. Hello. How are you? And Wade is in the booth. Hi, Wade. And today we have a special guest. Um, with us, which is very exciting, because um, now I just Sandra, I just moved off your name. Tell me your name real fast, a full name, because you have two. Sandra
2: Miller's younger.
1: So you took one name from somebody out there in society.
2: Me, my, <laughs> my dad, and my husband. Nice. Yes.
1: Okay, so this is interesting because um, you're here to talk about your experience of escaping. The 2003 Cedar Fire here in San Diego, and this is in the time period in San Diego, Southern California, we just went through the mudslides in Santa Barbara, which was devastating, and that was caused because of the fires. Right. So take us back to, first, we need to hear your story of what you were doing that day or the days prior to the fire, and then we'll launch from there.
2: Right. I... I love to tell the story because it has a happy ending.
1: Yes, (laughs) you're sitting
2: here. We really need to have a happy ending about now with all of these disasters we've seen in the last year. So my story began about 15 years ago. My husband and I reached a turning point in life where our kids were launched. And we were a little bit tired of the suburbs. We thought, what else can we do? So we found this beautiful house. Out in the country east of San Diego, where we are now, it was perched on the side of a mountain. It had a, bu- a beautiful view all the way to Mexico. And we just fell in love with this place. We, we bought it. We moved there. We gave it a name, Terra Nova, which means our new land. And it just seemed such a fitting move for us to celebrate this new chapter of our lives. We loved it. The house, the view, the wildlife everywhere, the you know, rabbits running across our yard and hawks in the sky. And peace Some, and quiet. Peace and quiet. Every now and then a rattlesnake, maybe even on the front porch. Oh, mm, boy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that would scare me.
2: But they were there first, right? So one day I even saw a bobcat on my way to work, just crossing the road on my way to work. Only seven months after we moved to our new idyllic home, we woke up in the middle of the night to the sight of fire outside our window.
1: Now, did you did that one come up so fast that you had no inkling so it was on fast. its way?
2: It moved 100,000 acres overnight. Jeez. Yes. It's almost hard to fathom. So the emergency people could not get out in front of it in enough time to warn all of us and in the back country we were all scattered off on all these little roads anyway so we wake up to the sight of flames all across the mountain on the other side of the canyon and this glow deep down below at the bottom of the canyon which told us that the fire was leaping up slope toward us And we knew we should have already been gone, so we grabbed our animals. We grabbed a couple of pictures off the walls, off the dressers. I threw them into a plastic laundry basket. My husband's a photographer. We grabbed a stack of his best negatives, and we took off in the closest car. Um, Was he
3: trying to snap photos on the way out? You know,
2: he was not, and that, Richard, is a great indication of how desperate this moment was because my husband is at his core – a photographer and a fine photographer and when we got out of the fire he commented i didn't get a single shot mm. so you didn't get clothing or it was like no. from like 15 minutes 10 well, minutes well maybe 10 minutes and yeah. that was 10 minutes too long because as, as we left the driveway, I'm driving because we could not find the keys to Bob's Big Suburban. We had to go out in my little tiny Acura Coupe with two giant Newfoundland dogs stuffed in the back. Oh, boy. Our little brainless cockatiel in her traveling cage slammed into the trunk, and we start out. And as we leave, we can see fire is wrapping around our beautiful new home. So we start out. At first, it's clear night, and then we hit a bank of smoke. And it is... Deep and it is dark and it is impenetrable. It's like looking out of an airplane window into a cloud. And I'm driving and I can't see the road. And I started to scream, I can't see the road. And my husband screamed back,
1: Well, just don't wreck the car. Oh, geez. (laughs) That's not too much pressure. (laughs) But on either side of the road you were on, were there embankments or or was it flat?
2: We were headed down this very narrow ribbon of asphalt that on one side just fell off. It was carved into the mountain. So here I am lost in the smoke and I do not want to drive off the edge, which is exactly what my husband meant when he said, don't wreck the car. And at that moment, Mary, a bobcat jumped right in front of my headlights oh. and something in me knew that that cat was on the road and something in me knew to follow it. So I followed the bobcat. The
1: bobcat just led you down the road? Essentially,
2: yeah. Wow. He, so he
3: stayed on the asphalt?
2: I had a, I, I knew that he was on the asphalt because he was running flat out. He wasn't darting up or down the hill. And we were on the slope. And because I'd seen him there before and because there was just this supernatural.
1: That was an angel. <laughs>
2: angelic voice in inside me. It wasn't even a, a knowing. It, it, it wasn't a thinking as much as a knowing. And yeah. I just knew to follow the bobcat. So when I got to the point where the bobcat disappeared in the smoke, I could see these two fields of red below me as we were headed down this hill and this dark place in between, which I knew had to be the road. So I steered for the dark place, and for the next mile or so, uh, we negotiated our way between two lines of fire until we finally punched out of a
3: curtain of flame. Wow. I can't even imagine. So so I have quite a few questions, but I'll go back to... One of your original comments when you were saying you knew you should have already been out of there. What? So was did the fire start the day before and you weren't expecting it to move so fast? What, what was it that leads you to say you should have known to be gone already?
2: Oh, I don't.
1: Well, and then what woke you guys up?
2: Let me back up and start it to, to explain the fire. The fire started about 5.30 in the afternoon the day before on a Saturday night. And uh, it simmered for a while. And then the Santa Ana winds came in. Yeah. our Yeah. Um, our seasonal winds that blow in from the northeast and they funnel down through our mountain passes. And in explosive fire conditions such as we had 14 years ago, Uh, Very similar to what we've seen in recent years with many years of drought, a lot of dead vegetation, very high heats, uh, high temperatures rather. We know the fire was started by a lost hunter who was in an inaccessible area at the end of the day when at that time air attack could not fly. So the fire was inaccessible and the firefighters had to wait until morning when they could attack it without endangering the firefighters. And when the winds came up, just about at midnight, it blew the fire out of this uh, remote area in the Cleveland National Forest. And it just ran like a racehorse at these um, populated areas. So we knew um, at one point that there was a fire. And
0: (laughs) we're all checking our phones.
2: (laughs) I turned mine down. (laughs) We knew it. We knew when we went to bed that there was a fire far far away but we had no idea it could come at us so quickly and we have seen the same phenomenon um with the recent tub fire that just blew into these um very urban residential areas of santa rosa just faster than anyone could could follow it faster than fire engines can drive that's what's happening with this new breed of Wildfire! Wow. So that's why we didn't know.
3: Wow. So so technically, you had been warned, or did they? not No, even warn we anybody?
2: were not warned. We were so not then warned. So don't give yourself a hard time. You didn't know you <laughs> yeah, were supposed to be gone. Good. It came well, out of
3: nowhere. Well,
2: we didn't. Yeah, we didn't know we were supposed to be gone. That's the good point. That's a good point. Uh, we knew there was a fire, but you know, we had no idea it was. It was going to affect us. It was 15 miles away. Mm-hmm. It was burning in the other direction. Um, so,
3: so to Mary's next question then, what was it that woke you up? Was it the s- sirens? Was no. it smoke? Was it just an intuition? Bobcat.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it was grace. It was grace. Um, we didn't know actually for about three years. We didn't have any idea. My husband just happened to wake up around 3 o'clock and saw the flames on the other side and said, wow, we got to go. Um, But after the fire, I set out to write a book about it because I was a career journalist, and I realized I was the storyteller who had come out of the worst part of the worst fire. Anyone could remember for a long, long time. It was the worst part of the fire. Twelve of our neighbors did not make it out. And in my research in – an extensive series of, of interviews that I did, I researched one of our neighbors. Um, he was a 23-year-old um, at the time staying at his mom and dad's house. They were our neighbors. And as he drove out, um, he had had another neighbor call him. And remember, we were very early in the area. We didn't know a lot of neighbors. Um, but someone called him and warned him. And as he was driving out, he said he sat at the top of our driveway and blew his horn for as long as he could. But he could see the fire was already coming at that point. So he had to leave. And as he looked back at our house, he saw a light come on. So um, I imagine that's how we woke up. Wow. Yeah. So this story, as dramatic as it sounds, is not sadly that unusual. We've had a lot of other people go through um, similar and even worse scenarios uh, with this recent
1: rash of natural disasters we've seen so in to your urban point about the tubs fire yes, your area where you were living, how many acres of land were you to from the other homes? Or was it half an acre? We
2: had really big parcels. Yeah, I mean, we have five acres, but the fire was just
1: chewing up. Oh, um, sure.
2: You know, an acre a second.
1: So, and so then, when they get in these residential neighborhoods, like where was the two thousand seven fire? Because that was pretty bad too. The
2: Witch Fire yeah. and the uh, the Horse Fire uh, were in um, Rancho Bernardo. Yeah. Um, also, again, through Ramona and down in the southern part of San Diego as well. Um, But the the fires are, under those conditions, become huge. So when we think about reinventing disaster recovery, which is our topic today, um, that moves into what happened after the fire, what I learned when I was researching my book, um, uh, and what I learned through my own experience about coming back. And I discovered that there are certain principles, certain practices that have been proven to build our natural resilience like a muscle so that we can actually support ourselves during this comeback journey that all of these new, uh, this new class, my new colleagues in the club no one wants to join, the Disaster Survivors Club, this is the journey that they're now setting out on.
3: It's amazing. I And, uh, you know, I'm a marketer, but so I don't mean this is going to sound a little bit goofy, but. You have, you're going to have a never-ending supply of work, of help to do, unfortunately, unfortunately right?
2: Unfortunately, that's true.
3: You know, and, and it's going to be one of those zig when everyone's zagging type work too because it's going to be when everyone's in the pain. You know it's not going to be this, hey, economic growth is looking up and everything's good. Like it doesn't matter what's going on with any of that. Natural disaster kind of throws all that to the side. It's, so it's, it does
2: focus your attention, that's
3: but for it, sure. It's, it's uh, very noble of you, though, to take this experience and then try to bring it back. What is, what's been the feedback from others when you've done more of the um, speaking and getting out and helping other survivors?
2: It's a message that has been well-received. What people need to know right now when they're coming out of a disaster is that you can come back. Because it doesn't feel like it. If I go out there and say, 14 years ago, I was in your shoes. 14 years ago, I was the one coming home to a mountain of ash and buckled metal where my house used to be. And look at me now. I've come back, and you can too. That's what people need to know right now because it's such an overwhelming task. It's like looking at climbing Mount Everest, and I want them to know – they, they'll make it.
1: Well, there's so many levels of loss. It's crazy. The loss of your home, which is a, addresses the interior of who you are, your dreams, your experiences, where you rest your head at night, where you love your family members and friends, and right down to the forks that you use to eat with. Absolutely. Yeah, every you know,
2: single thing. Every
1: single thing is completely changed and yeah, I've had a friend who lost their house in through a fireplace situation. Just gone. Right. Just burnt from the inside out, a couple walls standing, but it was a loss. Here's what you learn really quick though. You learn that you are not your stuff. I was just
2: going to yes. ask, does anyone you feel liberated? You are not your stuff.
3: Yeah, right. there At is some point, there's got to be some little only speck of liberation. photographs and things yeah, like that. Well, you
2: know, there actually is, and I know I'm not the only one who's experienced this because I've talked with a lot of other survivors. There is this weird sense of liberation. We have no idea how weighed down we are by our stuff. And some of it... Yes, is very precious and those are the those are the things we mourn because it's the stuff with stories behind it right. that is precious to us. What I would love to have back are the videos of my kids growing up. I would love to have those funky little things that they made me in school and Sunday school sure. and brought home. The popsicle stick stuff, the things made out of little flower pots and turned upside down into Christmas ornaments – That's the stuff I want back. Mm -hmm. Almost everything else can be replaced. So uh, the disorienting part of losing your stuff is that all of your history are connected to these touchstones. Mm -hmm. But you yourself are untouched by it. I remember thinking, wow, I don't have anything that I had Two days ago, except what was in my office, what was in my car, what was at the dry cleaners, and yet I'm still me. I think I'm still me, and you find yeah. out that there um, there is a freedom. You know, it, there was an old old song, right, by Janis Joplin. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose, and there is that sense. Um, I don't want to overplay that because it's devastating to lose your home, but yes, there is a level of of freedom that comes with stufflessness and there's also then a desire as you move forward in the comeback journey and begin to reacquire uh, the things you need and to build a new home i remember thinking i only want things that i really need and really love i don't want a lot of extraneous stuff
3: i was going to ask do you stage stuff differently too do you as in, like, if you ever had to leave in an emergency, you know exactly I do, it you is. know,
2: and, well, you know, we've had a lot of scares this past year, and uh, I took a bunch of our photos that we were able to get back from, um, you know, family and friends
1: have a lot of photos. Yeah, that's a good idea. Then you can just make copies of them today.
2: Yeah, well, and they'll give them to you, too. So once I, I got those from family and friends, I thought, well, this is it. And, of course, I keep meaning to. Scanned them all. But for now, I have put them in safe deposit boxes off site. So it's a little ironic because I can't enjoy the things I most would want to save right now. But um, I do stage things differently. I never go to bed without knowing where my car keys are, for example, in my billfold. Um, I have gone through my house and I have said, you know, what would I miss? And I put that in one place so I can evacuate easily. But um, what I noticed coming out of this was that people had different reactions to disaster. And I interviewed probably um, over – well over 100 people, probably close to 200 people in writing my book, which um, we should say is a fire outside my window. A survivor tells the true story of California's epic cedar fire, Um, the fire that was until last month with the Thomas Fire, um, the biggest wildfire in California history. So I noticed when I was researching this that not everyone reacted the same way to the fire. And here's what I mean by that. Immediately afterwards, you can see this in the media even now, everyone affected by this disaster who yesterday were just living their normal lives, all of a sudden today have been labeled disaster victims fire victims, hurricane victims, mudslide victims, earthquake victims. When you label someone a victim, that is a denigration of their identity. That is a lower status. Yeah, it implies weakness. It implies weakness. It implies having been conquered. I was really inspired to see in these recent um, – The recent testimonies by all the young women, former gymnasts who were sexually abused by this team doctor and one of them, a gold medalist, got up and she very pointedly referred to herself as a survivor. What I learned was that most of us felt that way. We're not victims. Don't call us victims. We're survivors. We're strong we're going to come back. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be a long and rocky road, but we will do it. There was a smaller a subset of people I talked to who did seem to embrace this victim label, and the interesting thing was it didn't seem to matter how much or how little they had lost in the fire. Some of the people who had lost the least, maybe a garage or an office, were the most bitter people I talked to, whereas I talked with the families of people who died in this fire. We lost 17 people that week and two families lost three loved ones each and I talked with both those families and they were not the bitter ones. Isn't that interesting? I wonder. Isn't that interesting? I
3: I don't know for sure obviously, but I wonder if it has to do somewhat with that clean slate thing that I was talking about earlier. Think about it. The people who didn't lose as much, they're almost like, I'm going to use Poor wording, but they're almost like a double victim in their own mind because they got wiped out. But it's just it's not a clean slate feeling. It's like it's a burnt an inconvenience. Garage. It's like, oh, now it's they don't I, have again, a trade I'm off. I'm thinking out loud, but it's, it's just like and who knows? But there's got to be some something that they saw that was positive, obviously, with those people, as opposed to the victims saw something negative. Whatever that is, whatever we want to define that to be, right. they saw something good and they looked for the positive. I, I don't know, if talked much at the conference, a little bit about the happiness stuff, but I, when I was doing work, uh, studying on what makes people happy, it, one part of the study that I was watching, someone got hit, it was a long study, and someone got hit by a car or something, I can't remember exactly, they even became a quadriplegic, another person won the lottery. And so, obviously, right when those things happened, their happiness really peaked and dipped, right? Depending on which person you're talking about, but within six months, they were almost right back to the regular. Interesting. So, because it was, it was like the lottery winner started to just compare everything, and nothing was quite as good because it was all easy. And then the person who had lost everything was just looking at all the things that they still had. Mm. So it definitely is a mindset thing. It's of a mindset How do you define thing. this experience that just happened? Right. And so if you instantly go into victim, or if you instantly go into survivor, that kind of it's more that than the stuff from what exactly. it sounds like.
2: Exactly. And the way I talk about it is that it's it's a choice. We can choose. This is what I realized, and this was the great gift that the fire gave me was to realize that. Even though we don't get to choose everything that happens to us, we can choose our response. I like to say we can choose our story going forward. Do we want to be the victim of the story or do we want to be a survivor? We get to choose that much. And survivors most of the time turn into thrivers and thrivers very often turn into victors. So victim or victor, that part is our choice.
1: That's very well said. So, you wrote your first book, The Fire Outside My Window, um, that details how you guys escaped and everything that went with it. But then, you wrote The Comeback Formula, a resilience system workbook five powerful common sense practices proven to transform crisis into possibility. So, I'm assuming you lived this stuff out and then looked backwards and in time. And through the interviews that you did and go, hmm, I see five things. That was part of it. Okay.
2: Part of it was my experience. When I met these people um, who had chosen to consider themselves victims, it made me wonder if there were other things we could do, if there were other proven steps um to come back from adversity, to be resilient and and to build our resilience. And I started to uh, do a little research to augment my own experience. And I found this entire body of work that many researchers have been working on for decades. I didn't know about it. It's called resilience. There's even a subset of the resilience literature called post-traumatic growth. So I condensed what I found in the literature into these five steps, and they do jive with my experience. So it gives us um, a graspable, proven set of practices that build resilience like a muscle that builds on our innate resilience so that we can transform opportunity. I'm, I'm sorry, we can transform disaster into opportunity and even loss into legacy.
1: Well, I've had a lot of adversity in my life, nothing to the magnitude of losing your home in a fire, but I remember talking with someone that was really being inconvenienced and complaining about it, and I turned to him and I said, dude, you need more adversity. This is nothing. This is so nothing.
2: (laughs) Adversity is how we learn. Yes. it, It contains great
1: gifts. So what is your first one? practice.
2: The first practice, I call this the comeback formula and come stands for come to a place of gratitude. If we can find one tiny thing to be grateful for, even in a world of hurt, it starts the healing process. It starts to lift us out of this quicksand that many people get stuck in where they're just continually bitter and resentful.
1: So to your point about the guys who maybe lost a garage um, or just a portion of their home, severe events, you, you're you either panicked and you realize you got through it. I think that automatically kicks in gratitude. Oh, my God, we made it down the hill. Oh, my God, we made it. You would think. You would think that it would be almost a weird exhilaration of holy buck as we made it. Mm-hmm. And, well,
2: it was for us. Yeah. It, it
1: was very easy for us to
2: be grateful. Even though we did lose our home, we lost everything. Um We got our animals out, even my brainless cockatiel, Chelsea. (laughs) Hello, I'm in the trunk. (laughs) (laughs) Chelsea flapped all her feathers off on our way down the hill. She was a naked cockatiel when we pulled her out. out. But she made it. Um, But, you know, we got our animals out, and we were alive. And 12 of my neighbors who were doing the same thing at the same time were not. So how could I not be grateful from the get-go?
1: So just a sidebar, did you build on the same lot or did you sell? we
2: went right back.
1: Are you there now? We
2: are there now because um it was our new home. We had Terra Nova. We had just gotten there. We were not by any means done being there. We're a lot more fire savvy now than we were then. We've taken a lot of um a lot of precautions. Um but uh, it's still a risk to live there and that's what we choose Can, to does live. Does anyone
3: with. do basements or anything? Like now in those like fire, fire, air, shelters. fire safety shelter things. Well, I don't like
2: think we have too many basements here in California because of the earthquake risk this one. Um,
3: well, I just mean in those scenarios, if you live there, because I know just because we live in the North Park South Park area, and there's lots of canyons all around. Mm. And Mary, probably you can attest to this as being a realtor that a house right across the street. Some people had to move because they're on a canyon and now insurance companies are going to Google and looking at the overhead shots and sure. seeing if you're on canyons and jacking your insurance through the roof.
2: Yeah, e- everyone who lives within, I say, within a mile of wildland, um, it's called the wildland-urban interface, is really at risk because when the winds come and the fires are, are burning, the winds can throw the embers a mile, even two oh, miles yeah. ahead, and that's... Lights off anything flammable, so um my advice to people though is not to um jump into the basement but to leave to evacuate early if there's a fire in your area. What about a pool? Some people did have to jump into their pools um when they couldn't get out, but you are still um you're still exposed to the, the smoke super, the smoke the superheated air. Uh, and yeah. gases, the heat if the fire's close enough it's it's not ideal it's not a it's not a a sure bet and in fact, there were people in the Tubbs fire um who took shelter in their pool and and uh did not survive
1: jeez okay so going on to number two number two yes yes gratitude's back number to, one back to resilience all right so
2: There are five steps in the comeback formula. The first one, come to a place of gratitude, and then come back takes us to B-A-C-K, this acronym for the last four. Um, B stands for be patient with the pain, yet believe you can come back. It is going to take a while to put things back together again. Deep wounds do not heal overnight, but they can heal. And especially if we believe in our ability to heal, we can believe that we can come back because we are resilient by nature. We are a part of a resilient universe. Resilience is in our DNA. Plus, we now know we can build resilience like a muscle through these practices. So B is to be patient with the process. Be patient with the pain. Be patient with yourself. It's going to take longer than you wish it would and yet believe you can come back. A A is the tough one. A is accept help. Be tough enough to ask for it when you need it. We don't want to be the needy ones. We don't want to be anybody's charity case. We don't want to appear weak. And yet accepting help and asking for it when you need it which speaks to the speaks to the values and the importance of community family, friends of faith, of asking for divine help. All of this is a crucial part
1: of building resilience and coming back. So another sidebar, yes. how, how did your children respond to this incident? Well, thank God they were not home.
2: Thank God they were not home. They were at this point, remember, they had already launched. Um, they were in their early 20s and um, they were horrified you know that that their parents had gone through this and had almost um, lost our lives Um, but they rallied and they came down um, to San Diego to be with us they brought big suitcases of clothes and gifts that they had collected from their friends it was really touching and it brought us closer together as a family
1: wow Okay, then back to resilience. All right, so now
2: we're on C. So B-A-C-K. C is choose your story. We've already talked about this. And this I learned from this wonderful human being, Viktor Frankl. Have you heard of Viktor Frankl?
3: Man's Search for Meaning.
2: Man's Search for Meaning. What a great book and a really quick read. Um, I recommend it for anyone who has been through any sort of trauma Viktor Frankl was an Austrian psychiatrist and Mm -hmm. also a Holocaust um, survivor. He lost his entire family in the Holocaust. He was at the worst of the concentration camps at Dachau, at Auschwitz. And he came out of that crucible of pain and the ultimate disaster uh, with the knowledge that you can choose your Response, He said it is the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And I came across that quote by Viktor Frankl very early in my own combat journey and uh, was, was so touched by that. It resonated with me. That is the quote that made me begin to wonder what else can we do on our own? What else can we choose um, to help us come back So we can choose our story. We can choose initially whether to be a victim or a survivor, and then we can choose that we're going to not just survive, but thrive. And a lot of thrivers, as I said, become victors, and a lot of us become givers. Once we've been through something, we understand we have more empathy, we have more wisdom, we give to others. And a few of us are called to leverage our loss into a legacy. And these are the people I call the changers, people like Malala, people like Nelson Mandela, people like we know in our own communities who start movements and nonprofits and even businesses to help others along the comeback journey that they have already traveled.
3: Hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. I think of it sometimes too... um, to go back to Viktor Frankl there for a second, um, they didn't all choose the same meaning either. True. That was the, one of the most interesting parts of it, that it was whatever meaning they had created in their own minds, in their own circumstances, some of them were, um, the meaning was just, I need to survive to report these atrocities. Some people were, I need to get back to do this for my family. Whatever it was, they're, they're, they all created their own... Meaning, and I don't know how this is tying back to Steve's "What is your what?" But it's a. Li- I sometimes wonder: is it in the DNA sometimes that the certain people just react a certain way, or is it the circumstances that changes it? It's 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 uh, you know up for grabs. I no don't really know. I don't know. Think.
2: That's an interesting question.
3: But it definitely. When I read that book, the most interesting part to me was it wasn't some universal meaning. Everyone just they had their own, and they were completely different. Right, but the, but they chose it, and the ones that, that was the part, they were the only ones that survived. Right. The ones that had meaning, exactly. Everyone else, it was just too atrocious, and they just whatever it was.
2: And I think that's such a lesson to us too, because if there was ever a senseless event, it was the Holocaust. So. If there could be meaning that came from that, there can be meaning from any adversity that we encounter. We may not know what it is right away, but if we can trust that there's some meaning there, that there is a possibility of transforming that
1: into a blessing instead of a curse, that will carry us through. Well, and also meaning implies hope. And when somebody looks at something as a curse, hope cannot reside in that realm. And we need hope in our lives. Everybody needs hope. Hope is essential.
2: Yeah. Yes. Yes. And that's what I hope this, uh, this workbook offers to disaster survivors. So we've got one more principle, which is the K in the comeback formula: that is to keep moving forward. And what I mean here is that it is so difficult to detach from this past, but gradually we have to do it because it can't come back. No matter how much we wish it would, it will not be the same normal again. I built my house in the same spot. I built the same house, but it's not exactly the same house, and I don't have the same possessions I had before. What I do have is a new life. What we can move forward into is the possibilities of a new future, the opportunities of a new future. Crisis always contains possibilities. A really key part of this moving forward is forgiveness, and I don't want to leave this out, to forgive anyone who did or whom we perceived um, to have had a role in our misfortune And we have to forgive ourselves because we very easily blame ourselves for what happened or what I could have done differently. Forgiveness is essential to moving forward. And in moving forward from our adversity, from the crisis, from the disaster, that's where we find growth and possibilities, opportunities, blessings we could have never imagined.
1: So going back to the first year and even start in the first week, the first month, And moving forward, people are so discombobulated by being out of their space and the tragedy of all the disaster caused. What could you give them to hold on to? Like when you look back, like I did, because you don't learn these things in the first month or first week. No, that's why I wanted to
2: do the workbook because I wanted people to have them now and not have to discover them over this Long,
1: painful journey. Yes, because then you had to find a place to live. Mm. Yes. And then you had to try and find a way to work with your insurance company. Insurance is a big hassle. It's a big hassle, and your insurance papers are
2: probably in your house. You don't need your insurance papers. Your insurance company has your insurance papers, (laughs) and they're online. But let's tell people where they can find these principles. Can we do that? Sure,
1: absolutely. Um,
2: There are a couple different ways that I am working to get this resilience-boosting message out to emergency professionals as well as disaster survivors. I'm um, a speaker. I'm a workshop leader. And I have made this workbook workbook available on my website, which is sandrayounger.com. Um, I have just launched a GoFundMe site called Support Disaster Survivors where people can help me get more of these printed and we will uh, will send complimentary copies to our friends in Santa Barbara and Montecito Mm -hmm. and Northern California and here in San Diego, the Lilac Fire, let's not forget. So please find this book um, at my website, sandrayounger.com. Support my GoFundMe campaign to spread this word at Support Disaster Survivors on GoFundMe.
1: Yeah, and even useful, very useful for people who lost friends or family members in any of these disasters, but they were not personally affected.
2: For anyone who wants to help someone, and we all want to help, this is a great way to do that, either by purchasing the workbook directly off my website, or to support the GoFundMe campaign, and then I will be able to print and distribute these to 1,000 more disaster
1: survivors on their way to becoming victors. Nice. nice. That's awesome. Okay, so we'll do that. SandraYounger.com, go and take a look at the comeback formula and also her other book, The Fire Outside My Window. Uh, that's probably very real in the way you wrote it. So people just like, whoa,
2: people can't put it down. That's what the Amazon reviewers say. And it's not just my story. It's the story of the entire fire. And again, a hopeful
1: ending. All right. Well, thank you, Sandra, for being here with us and sharing that story. It's inspiring, and it's very timely and very real. Hey, okay, thank you for listening to Reinvention Radio. We'll be back right after this.
0: You just got dismantled. Thanks for listening to Reinvention Radio. For more information about the show and your host, Steve Olsher, visit ReinventionRadio.com. You were born to do one amazing thing, but most people spend a lifetime trying to identify what it is. If you're in a job you don't like or are unemployed, if you're in a state of transition or just can't shake that nagging feeling that you were meant and made to do something extraordinary, then the Reinvention Workshop is exactly what you need. Led by award-winning self-help author Steve Olsher, the Reinvention Workshop will forever change your life. The Reinvention Workshop takes you step-by-step step through Steve's proven formula that has helped so many people get on the right path and clear about what they were born to do. Take the first step to realizing the life you deserve and desire by visiting the reinventionworkshop.com today. No more delays, no more denial. Reconnect with your true self, learn to live with purpose and conviction and become who you were born to be. The world is waiting for you. What are you waiting for? Log on to the reinventionworkshop.com today. That's the reinventionworkshop.com.